0: You are listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle
1: University. This is Michael Reitrice, Director at the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University, and you're listening to the Religica Theolab. This morning, I had an opportunity to speak with Fazlun Khalid. Who has a worldwide reputation as an indefatigable advocate of environmental protection rooted in religious traditions. He is described as one of 15 leading eco-theologians in the world, according to Grist magazine, year 2000. And since then, he's appeared on the Independent on Sunday list of the top 100 environmentalists in the UK. In 2008, he was also listed among the 500 most influential Muslims in the world by the Royal Islamic Strategic Studies Center of Jordan. Mr. Khalid founded the Islamic Foundation for Ecology and Environmental Sciences in 1994, which is now established as the world's leading Islamic environmental NGO. He was the convener of the Islamic Declaration on Global Climate Change, which was launched in Istanbul in August 2015, and he's currently the chair of the Scholars Drafting Team of the Al-Mizan Project, Al-Mizan, A Covenant for Earth, coming out in the spring of 2022. His 2019 book, Signs on the Earth, Islam, Modernity, and the Climate Crisis, has been described as a masterclass in framing issues from a faith perspective. Today, we had an opportunity to talk about resiliency in our communities that is essential as we're addressing the climate crisis. Sustainability, how is it that we will continue... Generation after generation to work amiably and collaboratively with one another in a global village environment, as Mr. Khalid mentions. And third, what's equitability and the issue of equitability going to be doing for us? How do we think about first developed nations and their responsibility to other nations in the world? Here's the thing. It's complicated. By moral, economic, historical, and geographical existential, and even anthropological features of our own humanity, which is to say, greed plays a role in our inability to change. It was an enlightening conversation, and I invite you to listen.
0: I was looking at the communication we've been having between ourselves and your institution, looking at the three kind of subject headings that you put forward. I'm looking at sustainability. I'm talking about resilience. I'm looking about equitable community in the 21st century. Good. And I would suggest that each of these issues comes with it, huge question marks. What are we trying to sustain? Are we trying to sustain our, our consumerism? Are we trying to sustain the environment? Are we trying to sustain climate change? Are we trying to sustain biodiversity? What is resilience? You know, And I see a whole world up in flames or underwater. So, I mean, there are lots of question marks attached to the whole question of resilience as well. And when you talk about equitable community in the 21st century, let's look at this from the perspective of what one describes as a global village. We are now in a global village to the extent that if one little virus hits China, it hits all of us. And this is confirmation of the fact that we are in a global village. So how can we then live Equitably in a global village, how is it that the advanced countries are, have been responsible for the dire consequences of climate change in the poorer countries mm-hmm. and what is the price what is the price? what is the the poorer countries have to pay a huge price in order for the developed countries or developed regions of the world like the European Union like the United States the whole north south divide comes into play here. Mm. What is the price that India and China are going to going to pay for the huge double-digit growth figures that they are generating in order to give their citizens a good living? What about the countries in the middle, like Malaysia, Turkey, Brazil, and host of other countries in the middle who are trying to achieve some kind of equity in the treatment of their citizens? So, I mean, these are the huge questions that I, I'm asking. And I'm I'm Apart from a few people who are sort of sticking their necks out and saying these kinds of things, the rest of the world are perhaps unaware, unaware of what is really going on, and people who know are trying to brush these things under the carpet, with the possible exception of
1: people like the uh, Secretary General of the United Nations, who is saying we are on the edge of an abyss. Let's talk about that. I mean, there, the statistics that are coming out right now, I read this morning about the amounts of CO2 or methane or nitrous oxide that rose more than average in the last 10 years alone. And the WMO's assessment of greenhouse gases, we're we're really in a point of significant danger. Although I spoke to a mutual colleague just the other day, and he'd mentioned to me he really wasn't so alarmed. Well, I'm desperately alarmed. I drove from my hometown in New Mexico back to Seattle, Washington, where I live. And we can talk about this in Greece and Turkey and other places all around the world where we saw forest fires this last summer. The facts are right in front of us, evidentially, it terms what's happening in the planet. So to your point about sustainability and resilience, we require a new way of understanding our impact or footfall on the world. But first, there's something about waking up perhaps to the amnesia of our current situation. Uh-huh. I wonder if that's, Part of the problem that our resilience requires, first and foremost, we have to have a deeper awareness of what's actually happening to us. How prepared do you think we are in the conversations you're having? This is a broad question to recognize and do something fundamentally about the changes that we're impacted, that we're producing on the earth.
0: I would respond to that by saying, let's look at what the Global Footprint Network has to say about this. Okay. And their latest statistic is that we have used up one year's worth of resources before the end of July this year. Yeah. And we are now living in borrowed time. If we are to accept that data, we are now living in borrowed time. We are taking from the earth what it
1: has already given us. So that means that each year we have a year's worth of goods or resources we can use, and they're counting that back. So by July, we spent our year. That's right. And every year, we tend to draw that back further, don't we? So next year, it could be by May or March. We are in debt. Okay, We are in debt. So that is useful to draw a parallel
0: between in debt, in terms of resources, which the earth has got to give us, and real debt in terms of our economics and the economic paradigm we run. And I would say that everything shows that the whole world is living on debt, Mm -hmm. That the countries with the highest debt is actually the developed countries. In order for us to live our, if you like, the kind of living standards that we aspire to and that we are living in, we have to live in debt. So this for me and my analysis, and and, and you're probably aware that Islam has a very, very strong teaching on the whole issue of usury and the banking system. Yes. You see? And I have been trying to talk about this, to write about this, and to encourage people to discuss this. And it's a hard task because you cannot, what we are depending on is what we call the fractional reserve banking system in order to run society. And fractional reserve by definition means that you have a small reserve of say $1, which can be multiplied a hundred times and creates money out of nothing. Now, how can, for me, this money out of nothing acts as a virus on the environment? Because we have far exceeded, we have created trillions more money than the earth has got to give us. Mm-hmm. So the equation is upside, it cannot happen. So we need then not just talk about sustainable development goals in order to alleviate the condition of the poorer people of the world. And that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But if we, or we also have to consider the fact that in order to alleviate the poorer people of the world will also tax the environment. Mm-hmm. There's gonna be a price for it. So in order to pay that price to be fair, to alleviate the conditions of the poorer people, we need then to tighten our own belts. The developed world like you know, I live in the UK, we are developed, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, possibly Malaysia, and the developing BRIC countries, the North North Americas, mm-hmm. we need to say, come on, chapter, we have to tighten our belts if we are really serious, serious about sustainability. Otherwise, we cannot sustain the earth. So we are on a... And I think the the Secretary General of the United Nations is right. We are on on an abyss. We have to turn back.
1: We cannot carry on like this. So who is going to do that? Right. That's what I'm wondering. Who does do that? Is it private industry? Is it governments? Is it people in communities? And to your question... Well, let let me ask you that. To your own question, who is responsible for doing that? Where do you see hope for that kind of change?
0: Okay. Uh, Well, that's also... Well, I see that as a challenge, you know, perhaps a hope as well. I see that as a challenge. In order for people to aspire to the kinds of living standards that we are used to, we need credit. And also, what really holds back the COP negotiations is, in fact, nation states vying with each other in order to give as little as possible away.
1: Will you be at COP26 in just a few days? Are you going to be attending, presenting? No, I won't be there. No, my organization
0: will be there. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm in kind of semi-retirement mode, you know, getting long in the tooth. <laughs> I'm passing this on to the younger people. And we have produced a major declaration with the Muslim organization, in the UK, supporting the COP26 process. We have to support it. Yeah. At least that is a platform that is a, a place we can talk. We need to talk. If I was one message to the COP26 delegates, I'd say, "Look at the growth agenda. You see that the planet doesn't grow. How can you grow? And look at the whole issue of economics. Economics into ecology will not go. And if you don't look at that, we're not going to solve the problem because we are all chasing
1: the rainbow. So, what do we do in a time where? And forgive me, I'm not an economist. My father was an economist. I'm not, so this isn't my first language. But what do we do in a time where? You know, not only is capitalism seen as the fault by which so much has happened, kind of un- unjust distribution of resources and economic flow of those resources to first world countries and not to other parts of the earth, but isn't self-interest in a form of even greed kind of built into traditional Western capitalism that's difficult to excise? and is impacting how we understand the nature of growth itself and what counts for a kind of limitless growth that is allowed to happen unrestrained, unconstrained or confined and is seen even as a public virtue with economic self-interest. What do you think of that?
0: Yes, economic self-interest. Yes, fine. There's nothing wrong with self-interest if you have also the, the it's balance about it. If you can say, look, I want my cake, but the cake is also limited. You know, what about sharing the cake with other people? Mm -hmm. Because we want all the cake, but the cake is disappearing quite rapidly and it's all gone. You know, look, I mean, we are talking through electronics, the media, all the gizmos and the computers that we have. It's made possible by the fact that there are umpteen number of satellites up there in the sky, zooming around, allowing us to communicate. You see, but... Then, in order for us to have this kind of this luxury, as it were, mm-hmm. we are now polluting the stratosphere. Mm-hmm. You know, there are over a million pieces of space debris that's going around and around the earth. And people are now wondering whether there'd be a collision between one of the one of these rockets that's going to send up more satellites, and uh, that'd be a disaster. So I'm making this point because every single action we do has a polluting factor. You see, and then we are also then. The sea is inundated with plastic pollution. So all our activities, whether we like it or not, the front end of it might look very clean. This this computer looks clean. My bookshelf looks clean. Your bookshelf looks clean. But all this means that there is at the background of it, pollution. But where it all comes from is from the Earth. You see, and we have far exceeded the giving capacity of the the Earth in order to (laughs) arrive at this kind of situation where a minority of the developed countries, the minority of people living in developed countries have the majority of the resources. That is a very old statistic; it's still prominent. We know that the latest one is that one percent uh, own ninety percent of the earth's resources, but but the standard one is where eighty percent of the world's resources are being consumed by twenty percent of the people living in developed countries, and the rest of the eighty percent have only twenty percent. So where are we going to have equity? But as long as the developed nations have the power to create money out of thin air right. and increasing their living standards, and they can only do this by this money acting as a virus on the natural resources, the rest are going to have to
1: do with the crumbs. Well, I think to your points here about sustainability, equity, and future resilience, what's required, what's really going to require of us? Yes, it will require a redirect of resources, it will require a sense of existential wisdom that we're not displaying now, that has structural rootedness, that allows developed countries to correct what has been systemically corrosive to the rest of humanity. Right, The way we've engaged and, and consumed resources to the degree we have. But we've been talking about that one for a few decades. Starting with Guntland. Absolutely. And look at, I mean, I, I watched a program yesterday of a, a single family just purchased a $500 million super yacht. I mean, these exorbitant kinds of resource allocation for one's own self interest that doesn't seem to have any kind of doesn't moral tripwire at all. It seems yep. perfectly acceptable for me to be able to do those kinds of things. Yeah. It's such a kind of baked in greed, if we can put it that way. So allow me to be kind of a cynic at this in the moment. Unfastening all of that. Is quite a job for the role of religion and spiritual traditions and pathways to be able to do that effectively. Just speaking with one another, what's your optimism that we have it in us to be able to do that?
0: I don't think we are going to be able to do that. Can you imagine the uh, Wall Street in New York saying, you know, come on, chaps, let's dismantle the banking system. I just can't imagine it at all. Exactly. I think this is where the faith organizations come in. In a sense, I take the view that what the loss of cultural diversity preceded the loss of biodiversity. Mm -hmm. It was this very same cultural diversity that protected the environment. It is not to say that, I'm not saying that pre-capitalism, pre-enlightenment, the faith communities were great and they were wonderful and they looked up, they damaged the environment also. We know that from, from the civilization of the past. But what happened then was those civilizations were biodegradable mm-hmm. in the sense that the forests grew over them mm. and the sands covered the traces. You see, but this civilization is not biodegradable. The future archaeologists will be having to wear radiation suits when they come to excavate this civilization from, yeah. from, from, from the millionaire from now. They'll be discovering plastics that have been around for thousands and thousands of years. This is the kind of civilization that we are building. So this is not a biodegradable civilization. But I think the hope is that when it collapses, as it inevitably is the case, you know, entropy means it's going to collapse. But this civilization has been able to reinvent itself for two or three times over, and it did in 2008. Yeah, we nearly collapsing, didn't we? But yeah. how did it? How did we
1: survive? Often undervalued, underrepresented, but we did see a significant financial collapse had massive implications around the world.
0: Exactly. Exactly. But we survived by printing money, yeah. by creating more money.
1: But borrowing from our future. So we're mortgaging our future in this regard, aren't we, continuously in the ways you've described?
0: Exactly. Exactly. So what I'm saying is that people do not want to countenance the possibility that this civilization is about to collapse. You see? There's nothing wrong with it. It is part of the human condition. It's the way the earth earth is being created. So we need to adapt. And when we adapt, we will be going back to our scriptures and saying, what is it that we need to do in order to re-energize society? And one of the the good things that is coming out of the environmental discourse today, the whole idea of a donut economy, the circular economy, where you confine your activities within a paradigm, that is conservationist, mm-hmm. you know, which is very much in line with faith organization thinking.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And we need, we need to think of new ways of existing on planet Earth. No doubt. I mean, that will be before long, London and New York, parts of London, New York will be underwater.
1: Yeah.
0: Let's face it. If, if the predictions are
1: all right, you'll be underwater. Even the modest predictions, Florida, other parts of the world, we're looking at significant environmental degradation. We're already seeing it today. Yeah, we are. In island nations, for instance, or those low-lying areas that where uh, we have massive uh, municipalities, yeah, as you're describing,
0: yeah, I'm in conversation with people in Zanzibar, where the Zanzibari government, well, we did some work there um, in in preventing the stopping the dynamiting of coral reefs by the Zanzibari fishermen, and we managed to dissuade the Zanzibari government from building hotels on these small islands. That was we did our first workshop in 1998. That was more than 20 years ago. Now, the Zanzibari government, who are gung-ho about development and progress and, and prosperity, they are now calling for international call for, for development agencies to build hotels on their islands, not really realizing that those islands will be underwater before long. Right. You know, there is no forward thinking.
1: That's the point, right? There is this kind of induced amnesia. It's too dreadful. It's a kind of objectless fear, right? It's too dreadful to consider. So it's easier to just deny it, kind of Ernst Beck's denial of death. You just allow that to fade into the background, continue to construct and to build and mortgage your future that much further. But it seems like COP26 and other kinds of international messaging is beginning to catch up with, at least in the news that I'm watching, a more public sensibility that we're running out out of time. For instance, there is a quote I read today I'd just like to read to you. It's from um, Professor Nisbet from the Royal Holloway University of of London. He says, greenhouse gas measurements are like skidding into a car crash. The disaster gets closer and closer, but you can't stop it. You can clearly see the crash ahead and all you can do is howl. But I hear you saying more than that. Religions, faith communities, sacred texts. This is a reserve of texts and traditions that go back millennia. Mm. And there's a lot to be learned from those stories that tell us about who we are in terms of our own best resiliency, in terms of how we sustain ourselves in communities through collapse, through calamity, through trauma. I could talk about that from the Christian tradition, which is one that I inhabit, but I'd be very interested to hear from you when you're thinking about this 10 years, 20 years, 30 years down the road, in the kinds of conversations you've had all around the world, people who have asked, what are the kinds of messages from those texts that should sustain us in the future. Mm. What are the ones that come to your mind that that resonate for you?
0: Well, there are are two extremes. There is the developed world syndrome, and we are all diving into green consumerism. And at the other end of the spectrum, there are these indigenous and traditional communities. Mm -hmm. They still survive. They still survive. And they will be the people that we can learn from. Yeah. You see? and we can adapt their survival mechanisms. And usually also these communities are the people who are in a sense, Mm faith-orientated. They believe in in a divine, they believe in a a greater power. Mm -hmm. And they are the people who who can keep the records as it were. And before that is lost, Mm -hmm. you see, before that is lost, we need to learn from them. They are the people who can re-teach us, we can relearn from them. And the scriptures are there. And I think one of the examples I, I hold up in my talks is, that are the Amish? Are they Amish in the United States? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a wonderful example of, of survival of, of a community over the centuries, in spite of everything else. All the things are going around them. And we can learn from them, you see. And they are conservationists. They are sort of, they don't believe in the big hype. They're contained, they're organic, Mm -hmm. and we can learn a lot from them. That kind of donut economy you're mentioning,
1: kind of interior. Exactly.
0: Yeah. I think that is the way. At this moment in time, I'm advising a group in Sri Lanka about how to divest from from chemical fertilizers and return to organic farming. Mm -hmm. There are movements that we need to see a ground. So I would like to encourage these movements, Mm -hmm. you see. The other discussions will continue. You know, people who are will pay millions of pounds for a painting or, or a yacht or whatever, because they mm-hmm. have the money. Mm-hmm. And there are others who would be more realistic and grounded, who would want to retain or reenact or reinvent what has been in the past and what is possible. Mm-hmm. See, that is the way I I, I say things going. And so I'm working. We are working at the lower end of the spectrum. While we talk and articulate the wider economics, which is brought the, the planet, to its, planet to its knees, I'm encouraging. We are just talking, setting up workshops and talking to people at, at that level of how they could, in fact, make the donut economy come real. You, you see, see? And we are at the moment in time ourselves trying to establish a kind of a global village where these things can happen, a local village where these things can happen and use it as a as a kind of a template for
1: other people. What does this suggest to the future of and sovereignty of nation states as we've understood them after World War II? And this is a larger question, and we can can touch on it if you like or not. But when we start having a discussion about economy and who it serves, and I think we're talking... The best served uh, donut kind of sized economies are usually local, largely local and particularized. They're engaged, maybe interconnected, but they're certainly localized. Nation states don't think that way. I think they think much more hegemonically and kind of unilaterally. Mm -hmm. These are two different models. Are they complementary in some way? Can you see complementary features or what are you imagining there?
0: (laughs) That's an interesting question. A little known fact. Is that when decolonization happened in the middle of the last century, after the colonizing imperial powers created nation states out of nothing, cutting across traditional boundaries? And they gave it names, all kinds of stuff. Mm. And they gave it parliamentary democracy, which some have accepted and some haven't. But what was essential for parliamentary democracy is a bank. I'm of Sri Lankan origin. And I remember. What happened when Sri Lanka got its independence, like like India got its independence, and other countries, the British Empire got its independence, each of these nation states was left with a central bank. Alongside democracy, the parliament was left a central bank. Without the central bank, parliament wouldn't work because the central bank can manipulate the currency and create the credit that is needed from thin air to run the country. Oh, it's, it's a built-in
1: problem from the start, really, It's it? a
0: built-in problem from the start. And each of these central banks is created to Wall Street. So the whole thing is global. Yeah. So they've created a global village. Yeah. You see? So how are we going to deal with that? So I, I'm saying, let it carry on. We can articulate. We can warn people of the dangers they have been facing. So, I mean, my spiritual advisor said once in one of his talks, that democracy is a service industry of the banks.
1: <laughs> I need to write that down. That's an important quote to reflect on. Democracy as is a
0: service industry of the banks. Of the banks. Without the banks, democracy, as we have defined it today, will not exist. Yeah. Because it depends on the ruling. And this is the problem with the discussions. Because they cannot do without. Today's world cannot do without the banks as it has been constructed. Yeah. So the thing is, how do we deal with it? If we say dismantle the banks tomorrow, the whole world will collapse. Now, what I'm saying is that we need to backtrack. If you understand what is really going on, what I'm saying is that if a few dozen people can get around a table and say, how can we build a machine that can go to the moon and come back? If a few people can make that happen, why can't a few people sit on the table and say, goodness me, my God, how can we get back to some kind of sanity? Mm-hmm. What is the plan? You see, but that kind of thinking can happen in, COP, in the COP process, but it's not.
1: Mm-hmm. But it's not. But it would it would absolutely be essential, wouldn't it? And it's really important, I think, for the listener to understand that this whole discourse on climate change or climate degradation, we often talk about, what the scientists are saying, but economists, other disciplines, theologians who understand a discourse on hope. And I would encourage others to, to also read your book, Signs, Signs on the Earth, it came out in 2019 to discover more many of these themes, particularly on chapter six, where you're mentioning many of these kinds of challenge points and uh, responses to those, where theologians also bring something about the nature of hope. In short, it will take multiple disciplines because this is a wicked kind of challenge in the sense that. It's tangled. It's incredibly tangled. And it's been tangled for at least decades, at least. And if we look at the colonial experiment, it's you know, it's centuries. And yet we have very limited time. We have.
0: I've been reflecting on, I also make this point in chapter six of my book, talking about the Anthropocene. When did it start? Mm -hmm. You see, and scientists come with all kinds of answers, like it started with the the nuclear explosion or the invention of plastics and so on and so on. I think the nature of the human relationship to the earth changed when the nature of money was formalized. Mm-hmm. And I have a date for that. And that is 1694 when the Bank of England was created. When it was possible for the banks to create money out of thin air, you know, the fractional reserve system, they were in a position to create more money, than the wealth that existed in the natural world. You see, and that money is acting as a virus.
1: That was the beginning of the Anthropocene. And that money is the object of a tremendous amount of wealth accumulation and even, say, greed associated with it. So this hunger for acquiring more, for acquisition, isn't really about products in the natural world, right? It's really much more ethereal than that. It's about money. It's about wealth. it's It's largely about abstraction, which is, I think, very difficult to locate in many of the sacred texts particular from indigenous traditions you were just mentioning this kind of adherence to the abstract in this way this more than that you might even call it a kind of just kind of unrestrained yearning for abstract wealth yes is um it's a drug it doesn't exist anywhere else it's yeah it's an absolute drug it's a drug yeah but they're going another step further. I mean, they're going further
0: into the fire in which economists are seriously talking about a cashless society. It already exists. Yeah. I can go and do some shopping today and flash my cards over a little gizmo and bingo, I, I get something back. So I, I exchange something tangible with some digits. Do people consider... Oh my God, this is convenient, wonderful. I got a plastic card and I can just go to a shop and do some shopping and then swipe the card and and I get what I want. But we need to think about that process. You see, we have exchanged digits for something tangible, and that tangibility comes from the earth. Everything we have today, we see and do and think and taste, comes from the earth. You see, and earth is not created by digits.
1: Well, one of the things that we know perhaps from our Sacred texts cross religiously is that there are plenty of narratives of rise and collapse. The Tower of Babel is just one from the story of, of constructing and building and consuming. And then the very thing that became one's heart of interest, like Narcissus gazing over into the pool at his own image, just comes tumbling down, just yeah. tragically. It's the wreckage and ruin. And typically it's the prophets afterwards, right? Or the those who are leaders and messengers in our communities who stand and say, it's upon the ruins that somehow we have, to, we have to build. We certainly have a long track record of doing that well. Yeah, And those texts attest to it. What's the hope in light of texts like that after the ruin?
0: Well, the hope is that there is a teaching that we've been there before. It's back to the future. And we've got to take this on. As long as we realize what is going to happen, we can be prepared for it. You see, so we need to work that much more strenuously in order to inform the constituents, inform the, the adherents of our faith in order to enlighten them of what the problem is as they sort of move into this consumeristic framework and what the resolution is once they come back into some kind of reality, back to the future kind of reality. Mm-hmm. I think in this sense, because we live in a shared planet, we share the air, the earth, the water, everything there is we share. And we need to share the kind of hope as well, because we can then give it to the people and working together, and I think it's absolutely imperative that we work together, we can change or we can respond to change and we can mitigate the kind of losses that we're undergoing today. And that is why I advocate very strenuously our working together because each is a shared planet and we have no choice in the matter. I had a meeting organized, a workshop organized by WWF and the Alliance of Religion and Conservation in 1995, supported by a Japanese spiritual organization called the Mukichi Okara Association. And we had nine different faith groups working together. And we came, it's called the Ohito Declaration for Religion, Land and Conservation. And we came across 10 common points and 10 points that we could work together. It's called the Ohito Declaration. There we go. And then since then, and what preceded that was Prince Charles' initiative when the, uh, the Assisi Declaration in 1986. And there have been numerous other efforts to bring faith groups together. And I've worked as director of training for ARC, working with ARC to bring together faith groups and looking at common perspectives and how we can work. So it has a longish tradition, this kind of environmental ecumenism. And I think we need to persist in this and we can give to each other. Now, the Pope Francis produced Laudato Si' in 2015. We produced the Islamic Climate Declaration, which is a much shorter document uh, in, in the same year. But now we are working with, I think, uh, Yad. Yep. And the Al-Misan. Yeah, mm-hmm. the Al-Misan project. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's going to come out next year. We are working very favorably on the on the draft. And I think the the Hindu community is producing one as well. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of commonality in this because we... See, it's a shared planet. We share the same things. We eat, eat the same food. Share, you know, drink the same water. Share the same air. So that, in that sense, there is hope that this crisis is bringing people together in an unprecedented kind of way. And that is my hope, and that is what I'm working on and encouraging people to come together. You know, that's why I spoke at the Icelandic conference that organized by UNEP. There is this feeling that
1: this is the time. for for togetherness. It was a pleasure to hear you speak there. And this, can you say a word about, maybe as we're concluding our conversation about what that is and why that conference is relevant? The Icelandic conference, the the work of UNEP and with the Icelandic government in particular for that resolution.
0: It's relevant because it's highlighted the importance, quite in in brief, it highlighted the importance of what we can do working together. And I think the High Icelandic government should be saluted for, for taking this kind of initiative and supporting UNEP in this. And I would also say without hesitation that the Muslim countries should follow this example because we have something quite, I believe that we have something quite special to give, both a theology and both a way that which is known as the Sunnah, uh, acting in the way that the Prophet Muhammad himself behaved as an environmentalist. The examples are rife of the way he, he spoke about
1: animals and spoke about preserving the land and the resources of food and water. And there's been good examples there. The Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan has done tremendous work, say, with Georgetown University, just one example among many, where you see, we talked about Kaisid as well. There are examples where there's been really Herculean efforts to make a difference and to bring that sense of theology, communitarian well-being, and Islamic self-understanding into orbit that has an impact, not just for the Muslim community around the world, but for the whole world, for all of us. Yes, I totally agree. So we have to wake up. Move. <laughs> and move. And move. And move. Thank you very much for your time. at all, Michael. a
0: pleasure. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the Center's
1: work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.